Okay, welcome back to What Is and What Could Be with Michael Clark, Architect. Thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here with you again in this podcast series where we talk through what it feels like to collaborate with an architect and what is involved in realising an architectural project. We talk through the creative thinking behind the design of spaces and places. Okay, today I want to talk about one of the side projects I am involved in or sort of some side undertakings. It's not uncommon for many architects to do and that is teaching. I enjoy teaching. I have taught for as long as I can remember. Certainly the first year I'd finished uni, I was teaching. And uh, my teaching experience has been as much as university or close to as much at university as it has been through another institution with the Australian Institute of Architects. And that's the topic for the day because that teaching, which is a course called PALS, the Practice of Architecture Lecture Series, is a course that is a recommended course to assist sorry, assist candidates seeking to get registered. And in that experience, as a result of the reputation I've got from teaching PALS for 13 years now, I think, I get asked this question a lot from what we call candidates. And I'm going to get into this in a second. Very important note to explain up front. This is not going to be a technical overly technical episode. I want to talk to something, sorry, I just thumped the microphone. I hope that didn't come through. I want to speak to something very high level and that is this question, answer to the question, why get registered? How to get registered? The subtext being, I'm worried I can't pass the registration exam. What's covered, what's involved, what's some you know tips and tricks necessarily. I get this a lot because of my experience of PALS. So I wanna talk through that for the benefit of candidates, but for the benefit of all the other C's, that is C in the alphabet A, B, C, not ocean C, just to be clear. The C's I refer to a lot in these podcast episodes being collaborators, contractors, consultants, and most importantly, clients, as well as colleagues. I wanna explain the fact that architect, you may or may not know, is a protected term. Again, I'm not going to be super technical here, but I want to explain the fact that six years of university is not enough for you to, you as in graduate, refer to yourself legally as an architect. Sure, in social circles, you might mention it, but the reality is it is a protected term legislation in states across Australia speak to the requirements for you, that is candidate, graduate of architecture, to sit the national practice exam and pass it and then apply for registration and have that registration accepted before you can call yourself an architect. Now, for a, for a, a, you know, a collaborator, a contractor, consultant, client, should this be a defining point in the selection criteria as to why you would work with an architect or not, or a graduate of architecture? And contrary to what you might think, because I'm here with this episode dedicated to this subject, I actually think it is not. 
I think there are other criteria, in my opinion, that should carry or should weigh above whether or not the person you are going to work with is registered. I know a lot of, I have a lot of friends, colleagues that are not registered and do what I would refer to as good work, provide what I believe to be a good service, and that should rank over whether or not they're registered. At the same time, I think everyone should get registered based on my own experience, both teaching and getting registered. But it is not a defining thing for selection. Now, qualification here, there are many projects where you, as in colleague or client selecting an architect, cannot work with a particular person or provide architectural services unless you are registered as an architect. I'm not speaking to that in this context. There are still many projects out there where architects or non-registered architects can provide services via building design, which we might otherwise refer to as architectural services, a, a design for those elements or those projects without necessarily being an architect. So I'm not speaking to those. So that's all I have to say about that in terms of selection criteria. It might seem antithetical to the fact that I'm talking to this episode or the content of this episode, but that's just my opinion. Now, going back to the why get registered, this is a really important note because the why I got registered, I believe actually answers the question on how I go about getting registered, which really the question being asked there is, I'm worried I can't pass the exam for whatever reason. It's a stressful thing. Now, again, I'm not gonna talk high level. I'm not gonna go into detail here. There are courses out there where you can go into a lot of detail on all the elements that are linked to these uh, competency standards that feature in the exam that candidates are examined on. PALS, the Practice of Architecture Lecture Series, which is a course provided by the Australian Institute of Architects that I teach. I've lectured and taught and been involved with that for many years, as I said. That's one option. There are several other options. I'm not here getting paid necessarily to promote PALS. I think it is a good course. Of course, I'm gonna say that because I, I teach it, but there are others. And there are other mechanisms to uh, have more intimate teaching. But in any case, I suppose I'm telling you that, that I've been involved with that for 13 years and I get this question a lot as a evidence of my authority on the subject. So I'm in a good position to answer this question as to why to get registered and how to go about getting registered albeit in this episode, which I'm trying to keep short at high level, not just a high level discussion. And I'm going to answer it by telling you why I got registered. Now, the first part is maybe obvious, and that is that there is ego involved. I'm not unique in this instance or in this sense. I was at university for six years, five and a half year degree, Half of, uh, sorry, half a year was dedicated to practical experience. I extended that to a year because I wanted more practical experience and I also wanted to just have a break after three years of study. A lot of people do do that. So it wasn't that I didn't pass a subject or something, which wouldn't have necessarily mattered in my opinion. But 
the reason I took that year is because I wanted longer practical experience. But six years is a long time to come out the other side and say in social circles, and this happened, what do you do? I work for an architectural firm. Okay, so the person who asks, asks that question then says, right, so you're an architect. No, but you work for an architectural firm. Yes. Did you study architecture at uni? I did. So you're an architect? No. Awkward. Awkward, isn't it? And then you have to go into the, you know, explanation, which is the feature of this podcast as to what that actually means. Awkward in social settings, more awkward in client settings, though it doesn't always come up because they've engaged an architectural firm and for that firm to say they're an architectural firm, they need to have a nominated architect. And you tend to not ask necessarily, you know, the project team, each project team member, if they are a registered architect. Either way, I wanted the title. I wanted to say that after six years of university, which I found extremely tough, that I had something to show for it. Yeah, I had a degree, I had knowledge base, I loved university, a topic for another time, but I wanted to just be able to say, my name is Michael Clark and I'm an architect. I enjoy saying it at the beginning of each of these podcasts, Michael Clark, architect. It means a lot to me. So there was, a, there was, there was ego, I'm not going to lie. But that wasn't the only thing. And it sort of struck me as not being the only thing very early into the weeks of preparation leading up to registration. I did PALS and I loved it. I loved it so much that I am still there. But this is the second part. And this is the answer to the why and in fact also the answer to the how. At PALS, and there are other out, um, places that you can um, learn what you need to learn leading up to the process, the registration process. I was putting my career, my learnings, both up to that point and moving forward from that point in the context of what is considered professional practice. It was the practice of architecture lecture series. The idea of registration is to review your ability, that is a candidate's ability, to be able to practice professionally for the benefit of the public. And as a result of doing POWs and the study I did for the registration exam, there was a body of knowledge that I learnt that I would not have otherwise learnt necessarily in the same amount of time. You see, registration is three parts, and I'm sorry I didn't mention this earlier. There is the first part, you have to submit a logbook demonstrating that you have achieved certain hours of what's called national competency experience under observer, I may not have these right, sorry, they're not in front of me, observer, participant, and executive at multiple stages of a project. If you think of the evolution of a project from start to finish, have you as candidate done the required hours under those uh, those components at those levels. Not a lot of us have done expert at every, sorry, not expert, uh, executive at all those levels. That is the person who makes the final call on all those items. In any case, executive, sorry, participant, observer, ex sorry, other way around, observer, participant, executive. And it usually 
uh, I haven't checked this for a while, so I may have this wrong, but it's 18 months. You need a minimum of 18 months worth of experience under over across the evolution of a project or the timeline of a project. You need to have logged that, you need to have worked for an architect and done the, those criteria and submit that to the Board of Architects for approval. And if that's approved, you are eligible to sit the exam. And if you pass the exam, you're eligible to sit an interview with two architects, which is a, a verbal exam, if you like. So we had logbook, written exam, verbal exam. And then if you pass all that, you can apply to the board to get registered. And most candidates get a little intimidated by the exam. And I get that because it's, I don't know, artificial. It doesn't reflect reality. I mean, if you're in a situation professionally where there's something you've got to work through as an issue, you're not going to figure it out under time constraints. You're going to work through the problem. You're going to reach out for support. You're probably going to have to, you know, go to others that are experts on that topic. So in that sense, the intimidation of the exam I get, examination in general, is, is problematic in that respect. But it is what it is. The verbal exam, you've got the opportunity to explain yourself. And it's a little bit problematic that a lot of people get stressed about the exam and forget about the interview because I know people that have passed the exam and not the interview. In any case, this podcast is really talking to the exam. And on my way to learning what I needed to learn to cover all those areas, and more importantly, to have more experienced practitioners than me that have worked on other project types at other offices, be they bigger, smaller, different program, projects, bigger, smaller projects, different program projects, or bigger, smaller practices that they are directors, their associates, their recent registration, uh, they've received registration recently, whoever they are, I was learning so much. And at PALS, we have architects, we have lawyers, we have consultants, we had builders, and it was great to have this exchange of knowledge that I know I wouldn't have otherwise experienced certainly in that amount of time in my daily practice. And so what I was beset upon and inspired by and quite excited by was that I was learning a lot in a short amount of time because I wanted to go and climb the ranks, so to speak, to be associate, director, to run my own firm. And I knew that wouldn't be available if I didn't undertake this knowledge base uh, test, if you like, or research study. And I also found it intimidating at times to work for practices and, and firms. And despite there being support around, there's often times where that support's not there or your superior's not around and you've got to have a response or work through an issue. The client's on the phone and you feel a bit funny saying, I'll have to get back to you, which albeit the right response feels that it's demonstrating your inexperience. And I didn't particularly like that. I wanted to fast track my experience. And there are people out there, and I would say that this is true of those colleagues I mentioned that provide a good service, that provide a good design outcome, that have achieved this knowledge base by you know, working as an individual and discovering these things or working through these things over time just by default providing architectural service, or sorry, they can't call it that, providing building design services as a graduate of architecture. But I wanted it earlier. 
And I really appreciated that knowledge base that I would not have otherwise got. And so that, in essence, answers the how. If you treat the registration process and the exam as the pathway to learning things you may not have otherwise learned as fast, the reason you're learning it is to be able to practice more professionally, to be able to work through issues with confidence, albeit not necessarily by yourself, but know who to talk to, know where to go, have a strategy to work through a problem. Registration doesn't eliminate problems. You don't get registered and suddenly you don't find you've got any problems. That's not the point of registration. The point of registration is to be able to be proactive and strategic as to how you would go about working through those problems. And we're not talking design problems necessarily, though in my opinion, all this still relates to design, but that's one of the hows. If you think I'm learning some information and that information is to the benefit of my career and it just so happens that someone's going to say, I'm going to use myself as an example here, hey Michael, do you mind if you sit down and I ask you a couple of questions? And those questions specifically relate to professional practice. And those questions may or may not be questions that we're going to get throughout our career anyway. It just so happens that someone's asking them earlier than they might otherwise have. If we frame it that way, I want to know as much as I need to know to be able to run a business, provide architectural services. At some point, someone's going to ask us questions. We're going to answer those questions to the best of our ability. I'm going to hope that that means that we passed whatever test that's linked to. But in some respects, you're always being tested, whether it's contractor, consultant, client, colleague, collaborator asking you a question in regards to the services you're providing. It's not that you do the exam and then two, three, four, five years after, you don't get any questions that look anything like the examination. And some candidates, sorry, I've got <coughs> dry voice. Some candidates struggle with that concept that, hold on, Michael, I want to know the exam answer. What's the exam question? How do I frame it for the exam? And I get that. I get that it's stressful. I get that there's ego. I mentioned that myself. But if you can park that to the best of your ability and think, I want to just absorb a whole chunk of information for the benefit of my career, there's going to just be this little point where I'm going to pull over to the side of the road and, you know, a police officer, this is a crude analogy, is going to ask me a couple of questions that I'm going to answer and off I keep going. Then I believe you can get through the exam. But if you sit there and you are just thinking about learning this information simply to pass an exam, I feel like you're going to fall over. You're going to trip up. You're going to get caught on how many questions to answer, what the percentages are, all that stuff. Please, if you're a candidate listening to this, frame it differently. So then quickly on concerns that come up, most notably, what if I don't have the right experience and what content to cover? Well, what if I don't have the right experience? I get this all the time. and Arguably, I didn't have the right experience. The most common thing people think they don't have the right experience for is construction contract administration. And I get that. I had the same issue. In architecture, projects take a long time to realize and they get caught up in 
budget issues, development application, authority approvals or something similar. And I was getting to the point where I was going to sit registration and the two projects I was working on were not going to be on site by the time I was going to do the course. I thought maybe I'll delay it for a year and I thought I can't keep delaying it. I've got to do it now. And it's a bit of a chicken and egg syndrome. Did I do the exam? Sorry, I wanted to go into the exam knowing that I'd already experienced those components, hoping that that would strengthen my resolve and make me more confident. But ironically, doing it the other way around, doing the study actually helped me get more confidence to administer the construction contract. And that disproves my point about this knowledge base exercise. I went to a practice that was an established practice with a lot of people and I brought information in from studying that helped that practice appreciate hmm, there's some things we could be doing differently or possibly should be doing differently that would help us, you know, practice what is considered best practice better. And but I went in and I hadn't completed, uh, I hadn't really finished a project from start to finish and hadn't experienced construction contract administration other than at the observer level. And that was enough at that time. And I think a lot of candidates are of the same opinion. I haven't administered enough construction contracts. Well, take a ticket and get in line. That's everyone's story. In 2023, it's not uncommon to hear that particularly non-residential projects that they are administered without the architect, that the architect has a role during construction, but it's not construction contract administration. Now I have an opinion on that, that you can listen to in another episode and I'll probably revisit with guests in other episodes. But for now, I'll just speak to candidates and say, that's okay. Another how to get registered that will help in this respect is find your crew, buddy up with some partners in, forms of a, in terms of a study group. You can reach out to me if you want. That study group, there'll probably be someone there who has had this experience or possibly is about to administer a construction contract or there is in an office where they're about to do that. And you can reach out and see if that you can join them and see how they do aspects of construction contract administration. I can't think of an architectural firm that wouldn't be unhappy with that, except that some might not be super happy to disclose client budgets. So granted, that could be an issue. But if you work for a firm or if you, you work by yourself and you know others, reach out, reach out. I think that the community, as far as those community members I know, would be more than happy to assist, to help candidates get through this. So you're not unique, you're not alone, it's not uncommon, and you can still work through it. I believe there are still pathways. Buddying up with someone, or if you're in an office, just paying attention to projects that are about to start on site and talking to the project architect or project director. Uh, if as a director of a practice, this also seems contrary to what I said about clients, I believe or I feel more confident having staff members that have gone through registration process. Not to say that I would necessarily use that as a selection criteria alone for picking a staff member, but for me, it would mean that there's a knowledge base there, which is good to see. Either way, don't stress if you feel you haven't covered construction contract administration. Everyone's in the same boat. I learned it through studying. I was a sorry, an observer slash participant 
uh, with a colleague on their project, but they were the project architect. None of my projects I was working on as project architects before studying the exam, I worked through from start to finish to cover construction contract administration. So that's a refute to the idea that I don't have the right experience. I challenge that. <clears throat> Just the last point is what content to cover. And this is super cryptic or some people might argue not especially useful. The content to cover is everything that the profession or more to the point, the board of architects believe an architect should know in order to be able to practice architecture. <clears throat> and that sounds harsh. <laughs> well, no, be more definitive, be more helpful. I would encourage you to look out for those courses. I mentioned PALS, there are many others. They will structure the course to help you cover that knowledge base. But really that is the answer to that question and sort of frame it when I'm doing my teaching, whether it's one-on-ones or PALS or similar. I explain that think through the evolution of a project from start to finish, from setting up your own, excuse me, setting up your own practice and the associated business structure, to meeting a client, to preparing a fee proposal, submitting a fee proposal, doing the concept design all the way through to the project finishing. What are all the stages involved there? Not necessarily, you know, design focused elements per se. Again, it sounds hypocritical. If you've listened to some of my other episodes, I believe that this makes you a better designer. But think about the framing of how you're responding or developing the design each stage of the project at each phase of the project and what is involved professionally from concept design through to realization and setting up your own business. I could go through that in more detail and I do, we do in PALS and other courses, but the exact detail I might limit to another episode where maybe we have a bit of Q&A or something, could be something for another time. All right, so there it is. There's my summary of why I believe you should get registered, whether it's a defining factor for client selecting a particular architect over another, how you go about passing the second component of the registration process, which is the exam, and also by extension, the, the interview, though that is a different beast in some respects. Maybe we'll talk about that when we talk in more detail about the registration process via a Q&A or similar, if we ever do. But I really wanted to just briefly summarize this idea of what it means to call yourself an architect, what you've been through, whether that should be a defining factor for clients and how how to go about doing it, or even, sorry, fundamentally, why? Why should I get registered? And I answered that by telling you why I got registered. Partly ego, I couldn't bear going to social circles anymore, calling myself, you know, someone who works for an architectural firm. I wanted to say I'm an architect. And sorry, just on that note, the last point, I did forget this. I remember the day that my registration was accepted at the Board of Architects. I ran a bin supply company, I think, it was random. And I just, wanted, I had no one else to call or no one else that if I called and said, this is the situation, they would think it's awkward, like a consultant or a builder or a client, they'd say, what? What were you before today? No, I wanted to call someone new and I called a bin supply company to clarify the size of a bin and said, my name is Michael Clark and I'm an architect. And the radiance 
the happiness, the joy, the elation that exuded from my pause. It sounds a bit graphic, sorry. Uh, it, it would have been obvious. I think I did have a colleague sitting next to me saying, oh, wow, <laughs> I could see you were happy to do that. And I was happy. I am happy to refer to myself as an architect. All right, that's it from me. Thank you for listening. Appreciate your time. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to Michael Clark Architect on what is and what could be. See you soon.